You're listening to KDOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told on May 11th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Whether or Not. Live music was performed by Cousin Curtis. Cause I'm a, a hopeless lover waiting for the cover of your blankets. I'm a, a ragged champion crumbling, but mine's are only for you. And if you would trade a smile, I'll come to you from any mile. Just like a bee to something sweeter than honey. My name is Amanda Compton. I'm emceeing tonight. I would like to just welcome you to our last event of Mudroom Season 5. That's right, it's been five full years. Thanks for coming. And it's also my last event. I've decided to step down after this season, and so we'll be turning over to the rest of the people. A um, little frightening, a little satisfying. Not to step down, but the whole last five years have been great, so thanks all for your support. I, sh- I should have given you the disclaimer. It's okay not to clap at everything. You can, you can just do it once at the end. Um. <laughs> um, this might be a really good time to recognize the other people that have helped me put this on over the past years. One of those people who is the one clapping consistently, that's Steve Suing. Um, we also have Alita Bus, who's usually here hosting with me. We have Tom Cosgrove, Rich Maniac, and then we have Pat Roach, who is home grading papers right now. And we also have Kristen Stouter. So, these guys work super hard. They are awesome. Definitely worth <laughs> clapping. The other thank yous tonight go to K2. They broadcast our audio the last uh, Thursday of every month. And Copa, who donates coffee, the rookery, who donates cookies from the beginning, they have. And Melissa Griffiths is our photographer tonight. So thanks to all those people. I do want to let you know that tonight is the last event that we're donating to Meals and Wheels. Before tonight, we had raised $5,700 for them. Two date total before today, all of the events, we've raised over $59,000. <laughs> And tonight, your hosts are Steve Sewing and Tom Cosgrove. Our first speaker this evening is Lexi Lodwig. Lexi has lived in Juneau for three years and helps facilitate the coffee fix of thousands every day. Despite her position at Heritage Coffee, she's the only employee to ever be banned from caffeinated drinks in the history of the company. Her stories of misfortune have entertained millions following the launch of her first children's book, How to Avoid Schoolyard Beatings, The Tale of a Cross-Eyed Child. Please take this time to switch your phones to the on position and entertain yourself until this thing is over. Please welcome Lev. Well, hello, welcome. So whether or not is the topic this evening, and I am going to tell you guys a story of a weather encounter that I had 
But I also need to tell you guys two little minor backstories to make my story make sense. So it's November, it's Thanksgiving, my landlords are out of town, and my landlords are really great. I live in like their little mother-in-law detached house behind their house, and whenever they leave, I watch their dog. He, his name is Thug, which he's not. He's not a thug at all. And he's 14, and they're the kind of people that are like, they're really cool, so anytime they leave him with me, they're like, if he dies, it's okay. And I'm like... <laughs> Oh, that's really comforting. Thank you. So their dog is super nervous because they've been gone for 12 days or something, and he has had explosive diarrhea in my house, like, several times, including on Thanksgiving itself. So it's just been a mess since he's been there. And then the second story that I have to tell you is that I do not do Christmas. I am not a Christmas person. Like, I don't know. But my boyfriend, this was our first Christmas together, and he is Christmas crazy. So he, at the day after Thanksgiving, he was like, we need to go get a Christmas tree. And I was like, oh yeah, okay, for your house, cool. So we get to Home Depot, and he's like, I was like, oh, what size are you gonna go with? And he's like, well, what size do you think you want in your house? And I was like, my house? Oh, we're putting a tree in my house. And he's like, yeah, and I was like, okay, mountain, molehill, mountain. Okay, this is probably a molehill. Okay. <laughs> So we get the tree, <laughs> and when we get home, I don't know anything about Christmas trees because my mom has always had a fake tree, and so you know how it's like in its little cocoon that they put it in, and he is on the front porch cutting like cutting the cocoon off, and he's explaining to me that you, you need to shake the tree out before you bring it in your house, which I don't know. I had, still had to vacuum every single day, so... I don't think that's true. And so the tree has been shuck out over my porch. Real story. Monday. Windstorm. Douglas Island. And I'm alone and I have the two dogs and I've had a very long Thanksgiving. Now I have this like emotional anxiety of this tree in my house and this dog has been pooping everywhere. So I was like, I am going to get in the hot tub. I don't care if it is a windstorm. I'm going to get in. So I grab two ciders out of my fridge and I put on my little kini, and I get out, and I get in the hot tub, and <laughs> I am in there for, I've, I've drank both my ciders, because you know, like, when half of you is cold, and like, half of you is hot, you're like, I need to drink faster, <laughs> so I've drank both my ciders in, I'm gonna say about 13 minutes, and I hear the dogs barking. And I don't know if anybody here has had a diuretic dog, but if that dog makes a noise, you are like, you want to go outside? You want to go outside right now, don't you? So I, in my state, <laughs> it's a, like I mentioned, it's a windstorm, so it's not pleasant. I'm like this with my cider. And so I get out and I run up my little porch and my porch is about four feet high and I hit it barefoot and I slip and I fall backwards, like completely on my back. My porch is not fun to fall off. It's like four feet and it's at like this incline. And so I'm laying there on my back and I can't commit to like somersaulting backwards. I can't commit to it because I'm too old. Like 25 is too old to somersault. <laughs> And so I do the like turtle like rollover thing. And so and, and I'm pissed because when you're 25 and you fall, like it's not funny anymore. It just you're upset. And so I, I, I get to like that weird like push-up position and I realize that I am covered in Christmas tree. <laughs> From head to toe. Because it's exactly where he shook it out. 
So at this point, I, I get up to my house and I let the dogs out and I'm, you know, upset. And my dog, Lola, who's a complete jerk, takes off after what I call sporty Juno night jogger. And <laughs> mind you, he is wearing a headlamp because it is night. <laughs> and so I do what anybody in my position would do. I take off after my dog in a bikini. It's November. It's a windstorm pouring down rain. I've been drinking. So, you know, and I'm like a crazy person. Like, and so we get down to sporty Juno Night Jogger. And, you know, we've all been there. Like anybody who has a dog, they totally know that when somebody else's dog is running to you, you're like, oh yeah, I'm a dog person. Everybody, all dogs love me. And then the dog gets to you and you're like, and they're like, no. So you're like, psych. So you do like that weird, awkward, like, oh, your dog is here, but I'm trying to be like, I'm trying to catch it for you, but I can't. And so Sporty Junior Night Jogger is like down on Lola and I like am pitter pattering with my bare feet and I get to her and I snatch her up and Sporty Junior Night Jogger's headlamp is directly on my bare feet. And he starts to do the very slow, I think it was a little too slow. <laughs> Overall this, <laughs> which probably was a lot more like a Loch Ness monster. And I, did I mention that this was four days after Thanksgiving and ladies, you know what that means. <laughs> so, Sporty Junior Night Jogger does this very like slow and I am standing there with my dog and I'm doing the, um, what? So I do what anybody in my position would do. I just turned on my heel and walked away with my dog with my head held high. And I have not seen this man since. <laughs> so, Sporty Junior Night Jogger, I am sorry. But also, you're welcome, because that is the best running story you ever got. <laughs> Thank you so much for everybody showing up. Uh, our next speaker is Curtis O'Rourke Stedman. Curtis was born and raised in Wanakama, Michigan. He graduated from Northern Michigan University with a degree in secondary education. Taught in St. Lucia, then moved to Toke, Alaska to teach for two years before moving to Juneau to teach at Thunder Mountain for two years. At the end of his second year at Thunder Mountain, Curtis and his superhero girlfriend, Kelly, sold everything they owned and hit the road as Curtis played music full-time while living in a self-made tiny house of 98 square feet. Over the past year, they have traveled over 40,000 miles, covering every corner of the continental U.S. Their blog, Pay Gas, Not Rent, has been featured by publications and products such as Business Insider, MSN.com, Daily Mail UK, Cosmo, love it, Red Bull, Turtle Wax, and more. Completing the family are their two lovely fur children, Sawyer and Doug. Curtis's hobbies include hiking, running, snowboarding, traveling, providing comic relief via bad jokes, and being overly optimistic in otherwise negative situations. Please welcome Curtis to the stage. All right, so before I jump right in, I think I'll start with a, a conversation that I had with my grandmother. 
I was about to finish my undergrad, and I called her up because she's awesome, and I said, uh, you know, I'm thinking about jumping right into grad school and getting a master's. What do you think? Well, without skipping a beat, she says, no, absolutely not. I was like, well, shot down. Uh, why not? She said, because you're not interesting enough. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, Grams. <laughs> Anyhow, it ended up being a great conversation, uh, and it really became a catalyst for, I think, who I am now and who I, who I try to be. Now, what does all this have to do with the theme of whether or not? Let's time travel. It's 2010, and I'm teaching English at a Canadian international school in St. Lucia. It's Halloween night, so, of course, I'm chaperoning a dance. And there's a storm kind of brewing outside, just a little storm not even raining yet, and two kids say, hey, we've got a friend that needs help walking from her place back to the dance, can we go? Well, they were upperclassmen, their parents were chaperones, and so it seemed like a good idea. It was like, go ahead, go ahead, go get your friend, make sure that she's safe, come on back to the dance. While they're gone, the storm starts to pick up a little bit of pace, and it actually turns into a full-fledged tropical storm. So rain is falling down sideways and up. The wind is picking up a little bit of debris in the air, and these kids are still gone. My thought is, upperclassmen, if you can see over the bar in some of the places in this town, you can order a drink. I'm going to go find these kids at one of these bars or restaurants downtown not picking up their friend. Or maybe they did and they decided to stop on the way back. So I said, all right, I'm going to go. So I book it down the street. It's raining. I go through every single bar in this downtown area. Nothing. Unbeknownst to me, while I'm outside, the tropical storm turns into a class one hurricane and I still haven't found these kids. I said, well, that's it, they're on their own. I'm coming back to the school. <laughs> I get back to the school, the dance is still going on, and the kids are there safe and dry. Fine, great. Over the next 24 hours, the class one hurricane turned into a class two hurricane, and the infrastructure of the island was pretty much demolished. Roads are gone, bridges destroyed, the reservoir filled with mudslides and too much debris. In three days' time, the island runs out of fresh water, School is closed. Adjacent islands and islands nearby get into a bidding war as to who will help bring fresh water back to the island, um, thinking what's in it for them. So I decided to try to make the best of the situation and join the local Red Cross. I wanted to try to see what it was like in the worst parts to really take it in and help and get some supplies there, but instead they saw fit to put this silly American with Big Dave. And Big Dave was this gigantic Lucian man who uh, was wearing overalls and a hat. And our job was to organize this cache of supplies that had been there before and that people were still bringing in, put them into boxes, and then ship them out and hand them to people as they needed them. And I learned then, working with Big Dave, who's a real character, but that's a story for another time, the connection that people have to their climate the connection and the relationship that they have to the weather that surrounds them in their region. And what happens when that connection and that relationship are severed, however slightly or cataclysmically in this, in this case. And I learned to make the best of every situation as far as making memories that are worth remembering and stories that are worth sharing. Now let's fast forward a year, okay? So I was in St. Lucia, it's like average 90, 95 degrees during the fall season, the rainy season, just amazing on the ocean. So I accept a job in Toke, Alaska. 
Fast forward one year, it's Halloween night, I'm picking up Kelly, my girlfriend from Fairbanks International Airport. It is currently zero degrees. We are driving back to Toke, and in the coming months it will become minus 75. You don't say negative because it has too negative a connotation, so it's minus 75. I'm throwing boiling water in the air and I'm watching it powderize. I am growing a beard. I look like Al Borland. I'm cutting wood for the first time. I have to learn how to use a chainsaw. I buy a shotgun. I buy a truck. Uh, I mean, my daily diet has gone from mangoes, papayas, guava, fried plantain, and curried lamb to caribou, salmon, moose nose, and muskrat stew. What have I become? Anyhow, after that, moved to Juneau, and now I've been on the road for the past 12 months. I haven't had a home address. I live in a tiny house. It's been fantastic to be able to travel around and see all the different sites that I have seen. And the weather and the climate no longer affect me in a way that concerns me, excites me, or worries me like it used to. Instead, I see it now as more of me. I am, we are, wherever we live. We are the weather that surrounds us. On the night that the hurricane was there, I was a hurricane of emotions. Every different bit of travel and mileage and windshield time that I put in, I am that storm, or I am that sunny day. And so it's important that it gives perspective on how adaptable you can be, the memories you can create while traveling. And as a full-time semi-employed vagabond, the world gets pretty small pretty quickly. So it's fun now to imagine the possibilities of spinning the globe, putting a finger down, finding a place to play music there, buying the ticket, and taking the ride. And that's what it's all about. Thank you. Our next speaker is Katie Bosler. Katie... This is the fourth time she shared a story with us here at Mudrooms, the fourth season. Many Wednesday nights, Katie carts her mixed green container of CDs over to K3 Public Radio for a volunteer DJ gig, 9 to 11 p.m. on KRNN 102.7 FM on your dial. She and her Douglas neighbor, Carolyn Miner, alternate hosting the program called Stormy Weather. Stormy Weather is also a main character in the story she'll tell this evening which takes place 20 years ago. It's about the time Katie and her husband, Carl, took their children, Caitlin and Kanan. Gosh, Katie, okay, let's do that again. Katie, Carl, Caitlin, and Kanan, who are on a kicky little whatever, on an overnight hike to a public cabin in the Bavarian Alps of Germany. Katie, please join us. Thank you, Tom. It's 1996, September, and we're in Berchtesgaden, Germany, next door to Salzburg. So think sound of music, gleaming granite peaks, verdant green meadows and pastures, and cows sort of mosing about, clanking their bells. We're in sound of music territory for sure. This is my husband Carl's old stomping grounds. When Carl was in high school, he was an army brat. His dad was career military, and he went to school in Germany, and he spent most of his summers in this region, mountain climbing, rock climbing, with a program called Project Bold that was kind of like Outward Bound. At this point in September 1996, our kids, 
Caitlin was almost 10, our son Kanan is almost eight, and uh, Carl was gonna take us on an overnight adventure, one that he had done many times in high school, to a hut, a cabin where we would stay overnight. So Carl had been there 20 years before, and since that time, this had become a national park. So we thought we'd better stop by the park office and see you know, if this cabin is still open to the public. And uh, we stopped by, and this lady says, oh, yes, it is, it is available, but it's very important. You need the schlüssel for the cooker. You need the key to the cooker. And we're thinking, the key to the cooker, you know, we're, we're from Juneau. We, we've got our cartridge stoves. We've got our backpacks. We're self-sufficient. We don't need a key to cook. And she says, oh, and the hike will take just two and a half hours. Well, that sounds just wonderful. So... We think, well, it's early enough in the day. We're in this quaint German mountain town. Uh, why not do a little shopping? So I buy my Sound of Music dress, a dirndl, and we buy some uh, leather uh, knickers, later hosen for Canaan, which he ends up hiking in. And getting towards afternoon, it's time to go on the hike. So we pry ourselves away from the quaint shopping street, get on a electric ferry where we go uh, down a long lake called the Kernigsee, and we end up at the trailhead, which is uh, near a barn with, again, the wandering cows clanking their bells. I think they made cheese there. And we see the sign for the trailhead, two and a half hours, or Stunde, as they say in German, to the Wasseram, the cabin named for a spring that burst from a uh, hollowed out log in front of the cabin. So after a quick detour to a waterfall in terrain that the terrain was actually not unlike Mount Juno, it was pretty steep, we decide to, we, we need to traverse back to the trail. So we're kind of doing our traverse on this granite when suddenly this fog just descends on us. It's dark, we can't see anything. The rocks are starting to get kind of slippery. We're still not on the trail. And we realize, oh my gosh, we, we, we might need to sort of stop for a second. And we kind of make our way down to a ledge, which is about six feet long, two and a half feet wide, kind of settle down, wait for the fog to clear. It's not clearing. So it's time to make some comfort food. So we get out the cartridge stove and stoke up the Kraft macaroni and cheese in Germany. It's our first family bivouac. And we realized we're going to have to spend the night there. Around that time, um, I had taken off my pack, and I see this thing sort of tumbling down the mountain. It's my backpack. But I had to kind of let that go. And we know we're going to be dozing that night, right? Uh, but our daughter, Caitlin, did document this incident in my life story published when she was in fourth grade and as Caitlin recalls it was the longest night of my family's life <laughs> except my brother he slept like a log <laughs> and I remember Canaan I remember holding him and he kept waking up laughing <laughs> he was like it was the weirdest thing I, I, this kid if I would hold, didn't hold him all night he would have just rolled off that mountain but he came in very handy the next morning because when the light came, the fog was gone, we could see the trail, and somebody was going to need to belay down and be roped up to check out the trail for the rest of the family.
Well, at that point, Canaan was in Mr. Hiltner's second grade class at Capitol School, where in those days they had a climbing wall, and that was Canaan's favorite thing to do. So Canaan, you know, Carl uh, thought, this kid's trained. Carl ropes up the almost eight-year-old. <laughs> and it's the real moment. I watch my son just kind of like belay over this cliff to check out the terrain for the rest of the family. Kind of like he was a member of Project Bold back when Carl was in high school, but he wasn't 18. So Canaan yells up to us, I see your pack, Mom. Miraculously, the trail is not far away. My pack is next to the trail. We make our way down, get my backpack on. We're ready to start this hike to the Vosser Am in earnest one day later. As soon as we get on that trail, it starts absolutely pouring rain. Now, this is not a Juno mist. This is torrential rain that lasted for the entire hike up a very steep mountain. It was like God was pouring cold water on our heads. And I remember just, you know, holding this backpack and feeling still downtrodden and exhausted with these little kids in this foreign environment. And I was not a German, I realized at that moment, because the Germans, who are twice two times as old as I was. They were in their 60s and 70s. I'm in my mid-30s. They've got their knee socks on and their lederhosen and their walking sticks and their hats and their umbrellas, and they're just marching up the mountain like it's a walk in the park. Meanwhile, I'm looking at drop-offs and little crosses on the side of the trail, you know, for the fallen. <laughs> Six hours into our two-and-a-half-hour hike, we arrive at the Vasaram, at the cabin, and it's fresh wood. It's, you look, we peered through the clean windows and saw the checkered red and white tablecloths. And this was this, the place we could get warm. We could get dry. We were near hypothermic. We go to open the door, and it is locked. This is a high-tech lock. This is a lock that you put a piece of metal by it, and you hear this click, 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 click. click. It was like James Bond. We could not get in there. And it dawns on us, oh, what the lady at the park office was talking about. The schlüssel for the cooker. The cooker was, was the, the stove that would keep us warm and dry us out. The better news is right adjacent to this place was a dark, dank bunkhouse with scratchy wool German army blankets left over from World War II. We would spend the night. And I remember just sitting on the ground, just crying, making spaghetti, just, you know, just feeling just, just hopeless. And Carl made me feel a little better. He said, you know, Katie, and this piece of advice has saved our children through many a mountain adventure in the last 20 years. If you sleep in your wet clothes, your body heat will dry out your fleece, and you'll wake up dry. Caitlin and I are stealing ourselves for another long night while Canaan is just, you know, cuddling under the, the scratchy German World War II army blankets, giggling to his Goosebumps books. The next morning, it only took us, there was snow on the ground, it took us just a few hours to hike down. And on the way down, and again, this is documented in Caitlin's life story chapter, a man who looked like Captain Von Trapp looked down at our children and said, you are very bold children. <laughs> the happy ending is we ended up at the barn, at the trailhead. We were served the most delicious fresh cheese we've ever tasted. 
and it was a world away from Kraft macaroni and cheese. You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded on May 11, 2016 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Weather or Not. Curious? Visit mudrooms.org. Uh, our next speaker is Captain Bruck Bruckman. Shipwrecked in the South Pacific, jailed in the Soviet Union, unintentionally kayaked over a waterfall in Corsica, France. Moved to Juneau in 1986 to do one year on stage with Perseverance Theater and Molly Smith, and has called Juneau home ever since. Please welcome to the stage, Captain Buck Bruckman. Long ago and far away, in a little town of Haver, Montana, where I was an engineer in oil and gas exploration, I had a call from the home office. My employer essentially said, Brooke, your next paycheck is in Kenai, Alaska. Well, you can imagine what I said to that. I was adamant, adamant. I told them I had to take my plane. And they said, well, get started. And I did. I hung up the phone, I turned around and bought an airplane. It was a Grumman American Cheetah. It's a single engine, four passenger, low wing, with tri-gear. And when you step into the cockpit, you pull a canopy over your head and you feel like you're in a jet fighter. It was beauteous. I also had the good sense to buy some hood time from an instructor. Now hood time is you fly with blinders on, so it forces you to use your instruments. When you lose visual reference flying, it's very hard to keep an aircraft straight and level. So from there, uh, many of the pilots who are trying to get that rating, it takes hundreds of hours to get the a instrument rating in order to be able to fly IFR. Now your airline pilots, they have tens of thousands of hours of instrument rating. I had not quite 10 hours. <laughs> Matter of fact, I was a brand new VFR pilot. I can only fly under visual flight rules. I landed in Edmonton, Canada. I went through customs, got fuel, and I actually went down to the flight service to get weather. I got some nerdy guy that came up and said, barometric pressure, humidity, wind, wind aloft, temperature, temperature dew point, visibility, you know, and after a while, I, I didn't understand the thing this guy was saying. Not a thing. I said, screw it. <laughs> so, whether or not I'm on an adventure, I headed north and there was very little aids to navigation. I picked up an AM radio station on an, what they call an ADF, which is just simply a needle that points to where your uh, strongest signal is that you are tuned to. I turned off into Old Woman's Pass. Now, flying up Old Woman's Pass is like flying up the um, 
Gastineau Channel with great big high mountains on either side that you can't possibly fly over. Two hours up in that pass, the ceiling came down on me. I turned around, made a 180 degree turn, and tried to recapture visibility. No luck. I got on the radio. Niner 7, Niner 3 uniform, VFR pilot, socked in 250 miles up Old Woman's Pass. When I want you to say something like that, everybody wants to talk to you. <laughs> I'm trying to fly the aircraft. They want to know the exact instant that I crash. <laughs> they were not helpful whatsoever. I turned them off. The engine started to run rough. I started losing RPM. The whole windshield just totally iced over, and I quickly lost control of the aircraft. I was headed down at several hundred miles an hour. I pulled the nose up trying to reduce airspeed. I pulled it up too far. <coughs> the stall warning went off. I had to force the plane down. Then I had to force it up, then down, then up, then down. It was getting to be pure chaos out there. I was in minutes of crashing, minutes of death. I was screaming, crying. I was yelling at myself, reprimanding myself for being so stupid to think I could do something with so little experience. And then all of a sudden, my reprimanding voice just seemed to leave the scene. And it said, Brooke, if you knew what you were doing, what would you do? <laughs> yeah. So I said to that, I would turn on carburetor heat and I would nail the instruments. And then all of a sudden it occurred to me, carburetor heat, we'd only talked about this in training. Carburetor heat reroutes the hot air from around your exhaust manifold down your carburetor. The engine instantly roared back to life. It shot ice off the prop, breaking all over the aircraft. I still had to get the aircraft straight and level. I was suffering from pretty severe vertigo at the time. I had to concentrate on those controls. I was going up and down and constantly overcorrecting and fighting those controls. And, but finally, I managed to get it straight and level. But I still had to keep going. The ADF that I had used was still tuned to the AM radio station. And it was picking up a signal. It was far too far away and not even in a straight line, but it was picking up a signal. It gave me a direction. I started following that direction. I had a long ways to go. And the plane, just to try and keep it straight and level, was pretty tough because there was so much ice in the plane that it felt sluggish. It felt like I was on the head of a pin just floating around there. After about two hours, my hands hurt so much from holding the controls so tight, I finally made it back to the AM radio station. I called in again. Nine or seven, nine or three uniform. I need immediate location of VFR weather. They came back. Oh, we thought we lost you. Unfortunately, there is no VFR weather. Everything is socked in. Three quarters of a mile visibility on the ground. I turned them off again. I started making long circles around the AM radio station tower. And I kept looking out the side window because everything was iced up. And finally, I could see the tops of the trees. As Soon as I saw the tops of the trees, I headed east to I could get to a river. When I got to the river, I got right down on top of the river. I could see the sides of the river, the banks, the trees, and my peripheral vision, and I only had about 10 miles to go down to the little airstrip. I landed, I had very little fuel left. I cracked the canopy and ice came in. The plane looked like a popsicle. 
I went into the flight service and to take my licking. I opened the door and the guy said, man, are you lucky? And I said, tell me about it. He says, yeah, the weather's clearing. You can get off in about an hour or two. <laughs> it was not what I wanted to hear. But in retrospect, it was probably the best thing that could have happened. Because if I had to wait to the next day, I'm not sure I could have got back in the aircraft. Eight days later, I landed in Kenai, Alaska. The first big adventure. I had many of them all through the state, all through North America. But from that first day on, when I went in to ask for weather, I asked for VFR weather. I asked for what I wanted, and I got him to talk. And he got him to talk in plain uh, English. And I listened. And that's the thing I used from then on, is I always tried to get people to talk to me, no matter whether I was getting information for air, land, sea, or even in the grocery store, I try to get people to talk to me and I listen. So I learned to listen on the, from this trip, but I also learned to listen to myself. And I separate that voice that comes out of me and said, Brooke, what would you do if you knew what you were doing? Well, if I knew what I was doing right now, I would say I'd try and enjoy life more. I'd keep looking for the woman of my dreams. And when Captain Pike says to Captain James T. Kirk, that he has the instinct to jump over a cliff without looking, I say, Geronimo. <laughs> Adventures are great if you can live through them. Okay, so for our fifth speaker for this evening, Robert Monroe. Robert grew up in Los Angeles during the 60s and the hippie generation. He moved to a ghost town in the mountains of New Mexico during the 70s with his wife. While living there, they accumulated 11 dogs and 7 cats that their owners dumped off before moving on. Robert moved to Alaska in the 80s and has lived in Juneau for 31 years. Robert found the god of his understanding in Alaska. There were too many distractions in the lower 48. So please welcome Robert Monroe. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I started drinking when I was 12 years old, and I ended my drinking career when I was 62. And I've been sober now for about eight years, and I intend to stay that way. I would like to tell you about one of the many incidences that occurred to me during my drinking career that were just unbelievable. I'm in Fairbanks, Alaska. It's December. It's 1991. I live in a cabin about 10 miles outside of Fairbanks in a two-room cabin. And I have a cat, and this cat, I've named it 12 Minds, M-I-N-D-S, because he always knew what I was thinking, and it used to amaze the hell out of me. So anyway, I've been on a drunk for about two weeks now drinking whiskey, and I'm just going insane. And I just can't do it anymore. I, I just can't live this way. I'm going to end my life. It's over. I mean, I've lost everything. I lost my wife, my children, jobs, you name it, I forfeit it. And what for? For alcohol, the drug alcohol. So I got myself a 22 semi-automatic rifle, and it's got a 25-shot clip in it. And I'm sitting in the cabin. It's around 5 o'clock in the morning. 
and I'm hung over to beat the band, and I'm going to end my life, and nothing is going to stop me. And the room is dark, and it's as silent as silent can be. And I take the barrel of the gun, and I point it towards my heart, and I put my finger on the trigger, and that's going to be it. All of a sudden, I hear this buzzing sound. And it's really loud, it's a fly. Now, I'm in Fairbanks, Alaska, and it's 30 below zero, and there aren't any flies. But there's one in my cabin flying around, and 12, who was sleeping at that time, is just electrified. He hears that buzzing sound, and he takes off like a bat out of hell. And, and it's dark, you can't see anything, but he's chasing this sound. And I'm waiting for him to crash into something, and he's going to come over to me and want some sympathy, and I'll do all this bullshit stuff. <laughs> well, that's not happening. And, and it's amazing the hell out of me, because it's almost like he has these night goggles where he can tell where this fly is. And every once in a while, he'll stop and go, row, row. and he's really getting pissed at this fly. And I'm sitting there just laughing my ass off. I, I just can't believe this. It, because one moment I'm going to end my life, and the next minute I'm hysterically laughing. And this goes on for about 10 to 15 minutes. And then finally it's silent. No more bzz, buzzing sound, and 12 isn't moving. And I take the rifle that I've been holding, and I put it on the floor. And right about that time, 12 comes over, and he jumps on my lap, and he's purring. And I looked down at him, and I told him that he just saved my life. But you know, somehow I think he knew that. And that's what happened to me in December of 1991 in Fairbanks. And you know, I never contemplated suicide after that. They say that God looks after little children and alcoholics because they're incapable of taking care of themselves. And I truly believe that. Thank you. Our next speaker to the stage this evening is uh, Karen Elliott. Karen was born and raised in Trinidad, lived in Brooklyn, New York for 25 years, and moved to Juneau for a one-year stint as a speech-language pathologist. She is happy that she does not have to introduce herself because it's never comforting to have a professional speech therapist mispronounce her job title. She loves to travel. She enjoys reading any piece of fiction that does not take itself seriously. She enjoys skiing, ice skating, and dancing, and does all three badly. And she loves uh, gourmetizing cheese and needlessly using fancy words for quote, uh, quotidian phrases such as cheese consumption. Please welcome Karen to the stage. everybody. Um, guess who's nervous? So uh, I wanted to, and I still will, because uh, I wanted to tell you a story about rain. <laughs> um, <laughs> about all the rain that we're having. Um, so I wanted to start off with this, you know, sort of very serious and maybe poetic thing with like, you know, does it rain on the moon? And, 
you know, well, no, it doesn't because that's a ridiculous concept because the moon is beyond the atmosphere that gives us the rain and it's a whole, it doesn't matter. Um, because it's sunny out. Um, and I've got my ankles exposed, which tells you a lot about me that I think warmth and ankles are things that go together. Um, so anyway, I will sort of fast forward through a lot of that stuff and just go with where I was headed. So guess where it rains? In Juno. If this is your first day in Juno, you do not believe me, but everybody else here knows that I'm telling the truth. Um, but one of my favorite things is that rain doesn't stop any activity in Juneau. And like you mentioned, I'm from New York. In New York, if, if it rains, you get to know who your fair weather friends are. But I feel like in Juneau, if somebody says they're not gonna hang out with you because it's raining, they're probably just not your friend, okay? <laughs> like, it's just, you know, just don't trust that person. Um, so not only does it not stop the activity, I love that I've seen, you know, it's just, people don't just go out, you know. They're moseying through the rain. They're window shopping in pouring rain. They are jogging along the side of the highway, which is a new thing for me, anybody alongside any highway. Um, we just, it does not happen in New York, so I'm driving, I'm like, oh, there's a, and there's a, okay. And in the rain, and I love that. I think it's amazing. Um, and then, so, and nobody has an umbrella. I think I've literally seen three people with umbrellas, and one was Saturday, she was fresh off the tourist bus. So uh, to me, it's a thing that boggles my mind, and it's a thing that I love about Juno and Junoites. Is that, yes? Yeah. Sure, okay. Um, so yeah, I like that. And one of the best things, another thing, is that uh, the kids just, I work for the school district, three times a day I watch those kids dash outside to recess in pouring rain. And, because if you don't go when it's raining, you don't go. And so I watch them and they go out there pell-mell, they fling their bodies, because it's recess and they have to break free like it's prison. And even better than that is that they run out there with their rain boots on and they will meet the vertical flood or a dry, sunny day with their rain boots on. And I'm just like, really? You know, and so not only does the rain not stop activities, it makes rain boots year-round gear. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll get myself some rain boots. So another thing is, while my lovely New York may have like this, you know, internationally recognizable skyline, it's got nothing on your landscape, okay? Your landscape is alive. You've got the lush green, you've got like, you know, the white mountain, uh, white-capped, snow-capped mountains, but you've got this thing that I'm gonna miss the most, I think, about Juno. You've got fog. I know it's the F word, and I'm sorry. <laughs> I know you would like me to call it mist, but you and I both know what fog is, let's not kid ourselves. So, the fact that this thing, this Really, it's a nothing thing. And I watch it from my office window, and it can just, it's like magic. It can just, like, poof, make the mountain disappear, you know? And I live out by Skater's Cabin, it can, poof, totally cover Mendenhall Glacier. Literally, yesterday morning, there was nothing outside my living room window other than a few trees. This morning, I could make out every crack and crevice in the glacier. I could see the mountain, I could outline it. If I had any talent, I could draw it. 
but this fog just comes in. And it can be, you know, like really light and wispy and eth like ethereal, but it can also be this thick, dense soup where like when I drive through it, I know when it begins and where it ends, like you can feel it, you know. I have taken innumerable pictures of this fog. You know, there's the mountain, there's not the mountain. It's like, oh my gosh, five minutes have passed. Like, like, oh wow, you know, it's just, yeah. And, and you guys are like, yeah, fog, or sorry, mist. Um, you know, I've taken tons of videos like while I'm driving, I'm like, yeah, oh my gosh, you know, like I'm getting this, like Instagram, you know, I'm so excited. And then, you know, I do that while I'm driving because I'm that kind of driver. Um, so, but I'm also the kind of driver who, when I first moved here, one Sunday afternoon, I saw this rainbow in the sky, and to me, it was so amazing. I was like, oh my gosh, look, you know, there's a rainbow, and I'm like, I'm talking to nobody because I moved to Juno alone, but I'm in my car, and I'm like, oh, and so I want to stop the car, but I can't because I'm driving. And so what I do is I slow down and I practically cripple the traffic on Egan and I take a picture because it's the most amazing thing I've seen. Because I can count on a single hand the amount of times I've seen a rainbow in my adult life. And they're like these weak things, you know, you kind of have to squint to make sure you know what you're looking at and maybe you pat your friend and you're like, you're okay, so it's a rainbow? Yeah, okay, oh, okay, got it. No, the thing I saw on that day, I think it was in October, was like this crisp, clear arc, like somebody drew it. I could make out Roy G. Biv, it was so clear. <laughs> like, I hadn't seen anything like this, you know? Um, and so, you know, I took, I took my bunch of pictures, and oh my goodness, I'm so excited. But it's a rainbow, you know? It's a weather phenomenon brought about by rain. So I can't be mad at the rain, you know? And people found out, you know, I came in mid-September, they're like, oh, sorry, you had to experience October. I'm like, <laughs> just rain and everybody found out that I'm leaving in three weeks you know back to New York and they're like was it the weather that drove you away I'm like no like it's a big no like it's just rain you know and I don't know to me it is just rain but I'm so appreciative for the time that I've had here because you folks showed me it's just water you can go out in it we are not dry clean only um <laughs> You know, and so I, I thank you for that, and I hope you appreciate, I hope you really do consider yourselves very blessed that you live in a place with that rain and that mist, sure, um, and these mudrooms. This is special. Thank you. Our last speaker this evening is Allie Horrigan. Although Allie hails from Wisconsin, she only eats one dairy product, sharp cheddar cheese, the white one from Costco. <laughs> A former dancer in New York City, she can now most often be found in the mountains, collapsed in a heap of laughter on the floor, or eating so much soy nut butter that her tongue goes numb. Although her truck has a sticker that reads, shoot straight, aim to kill, apologize to no one, she's an animal lover through and through. So please, welcome Allie. My dad was a veterinarian. He turned a hardware store into the Richmond Vet Clinic at the Wisconsin-Illinois state line. 
and he folded everyone he loved into his business. My brothers and I had our first summer jobs mowing the lawn, picking weeds, and cleaning up the parking lot. He even hired my childhood best friend Darcy to help me stain the fence that surrounded his property. It took us two years to complete the job, originally estimated to take part of one summer vacation. At the end of the day, he'd look at the fence and look at both of us and ask the same question. Did you get anything on the fence? We weren't the neatest painters, but it didn't matter to him, at least not enough to let us go. He also brought his work home with him. Um, our bathrooms would turn into makeshift ICUs for sick dogs. And one evening, he even came home from work with an extra large snapping turtle in a cardboard box. It had been hit by a car. And I can't imagine a more supportive partner for my dad, but my mom was justifiably concerned about the wildlife being brought into our home. Um, my brothers and I crowded around the box as my dad lowered a finger-sized stick in front of the turtle, who, living up to his namesake, snapped it in half. And that, he said, is why you don't pet the turtle. And the turtle stayed the weekend. Eventually, I was promoted to indoor jobs at the vet clinic, which meant that I could help in the exam rooms and in surgery and check in his patients at the front desk. And while his clinic mostly served your typical family pets, his real passion was in wildlife rehabilitation. And so he devoted his time and energy and talents to founding Fellow Mortals Wildlife Hospital and Sanctuary, which was a separate facility near our home. In addition to the dogs and cats that would come in, he also saw geese and hawks and eagles, turtles, all kinds of woodland animals, even a pelican found their way into his waiting room. My final test came the summer after my senior year of high school. Um, we had just finished a particularly stressful surgery that involved placing a custom-made pin in the broken leg of a woodchuck. And it was now my job to drive this woodchuck, I called him Hank, from the Richmond Vet Clinic to fellow mortals where he would finish the rest of his recovery and hopefully be re-released to join his wild brothers and sisters. Um, it was a blazingly hot summer day as I prepared Hank for what would hopefully be the last car ride of his life. I nestled him in clean blankets and put him in a carrier crate, belted him in to the passenger seat of my car, and we faced about an hour drive in a car that shook violently over 50 miles an hour and had no air conditioning. So. We set out, all the windows rolled down, and as the car picked up speed, so did the frequency of its vibration. And while I was accustomed to these features of my car, they were clearly only adding to Hank's anxiety. I tried singing to him and cooing to him, but my attention soon turned back to the car with which I was so familiar. It was shaking more than usual. Maybe a mile or two went by. It was definitely shaking more than usual. And I didn't have to wonder whether or not I should pull over for very long because it soon became very obvious that that's what I needed to do. So we find a spot on the side of the road and I get out to try to find the source of our problem. And it's pretty clear. The entire driver's side front tire had shred off of the rim and the rim had become significantly misshapen from me driving on it. <laughs> Shoot. This is a big problem. I, I don't know how to change a tire at this point, and it's very clear that we're not going to be able to drive anywhere. I do have a cell phone, and I think about calling my dad. He had had a very busy day, and this surgery had really backed up his afternoon appointments, and while I know he'd want to help me if I needed him, 
I was not very excited to tell him about what had happened to the car. So I decided to try my brother. Um, my brother doesn't have a driver's license at this point. He's younger than me. But he does have a friend, and I think his friend has a permit, and I'm pretty sure that he has a lot of experience driving trucks on his family farm. So I know that they're together that day, enjoying the summer afternoon at the lake near our house, and when I call them, they both agree to come get me. This is a big relief. We're going to be rescued. But we face about an hour wait in the hot summer sun with relatively few resources at our disposal. Hank doesn't like my singing. He doesn't want to be scratched behind the ears, and when I try to hold the paw that he's extended through the wire of his cage, he hisses at me. I didn't even know woodchucks could hiss. I think maybe he's too hot in all these blankets that I had nested him so gently in, and if I just could open up the cage and give him a little more space to wander around, he might feel less stressed. I carefully open the door, and he immediately lunges for my hand. I not so gently shove him in the blankets, back in the crate, locking the door behind him. We were just going to have to sweat it out, and I didn't have water for either of us. Well, not soon enough, I see my brother and his friend coming up the road towards us, and we abandon my station wagon on the side of the highway, and the four of us have an uneventful drive the rest of the way to fellow mortals, where we drop off Hank. I don't know if he made his full recovery, if he was ever re-released. Many of my dad's patients were. Some of them spent the rest of their lives being cared for by people at the sanctuary created for them. But I felt so special and so fortunate to have the opportunities that only my dad could give me, like figuring out what to do with a woodchuck on a hot summer day when your car breaks down on a country road. <laughs> and things changed for my family. My dad was diagnosed with brain cancer. He passed away a few years ago leaving behind his clinic and the wildlife hospital and the many, many animals, wild and tame, that he helped heal in his career. And I know that he loved his work, and he loved us, and I think to him sometimes that meant the same thing. Thank you. This is KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded at the last event of Mudroom's Season 5 on May 11, 2016. The theme for the evening was Weather or Not. To tell your story or to find out about the schedule and themes for Season 6, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from Alita Bus, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, Steve Stewing, and Kristen Stouter. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night. And if you would trade a smile, I'll come to you from any mile. Just like a bee to something sweeter than honey.